Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints. Episode 4, Tell My Family Not to Cry. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be talking about someone who proves that you don't need to be a priest, a nun, or a dragon-slaying knight, to live a life of heroic virtue. Sometimes, a saint is just an ordinary layperson, working an ordinary job, who makes an extraordinary sacrifice for the kingdom of heaven. As I'm recording this in the year of our Lord 2022, the subject of today's episode is not yet even a canonized saint, but he's on the path to sainthood, having been beatified, in 2018. He was not an adventurer from some long-lost age of heroes, but a husband, a father, and a schoolteacher, who gave his life for Christ within living memory. His name is Blessed Lucian Bodavasoa. Lucian lived on the island of Madagascar, off the southeast coast of Africa, during the first half of the 20th century. Because his life and martyrdom were bound up in the troubled politics of his country, I think a bit of background on the world in which he lived will help us better appreciate his story. In Lucien's day, Madagascar was a French colony, but it had recently been an independent nation, and many on the island still harbored a strong sense of national pride. As we'll see in the life of Lucien, the drive for independence from their French rulers often led the people of Madagascar to resent any foreign influence, including the influence of Christianity. Madagascar, a land rich in natural beauty, unique wildlife, and a great variety of cultures, received her first Christian missionaries almost a century before Lucian's birth, when the rulers of the native Marina kingdom struck an alliance with the envoys of the British Empire. The Marina were, and still are, the dominant ethnicity on the island, a race of warriors from the highlands of the heart of Madagascar. In the 1820s, with the backing of the British, the Marina king Radama the Great conquered most of the island, abolished the slave trade, which was a major British goal at the time, and allowed Protestant clergy from the London Missionary Society to preach at the royal court. But not all Madagascans were thrilled by their king's openness to the wider world and the changes that entailed for their country. The old Marina aristocracy in particular had little love for the Europeans and their foreign faith, and when King Radama died in 1828, his wife and successor, Queen Ranavalona, tried to exterminate Christianity in Madagascar, on behalf of the pagan nobility. This persecution has been called the time when the land was dark, in the memory of Madagascan Christians ever since. Under the reign of Queen Ranavalona, 
Christians were burned at the stake as witches, forced to swallow poison, and thrown off of cliffs for their religion. It was not the last time the island would be watered with the blood of martyrs. Even so, by the late 19th century, Christianity had made a foothold in Madagascar. Queen Ranavalona's persecution proved short-lived, and the later kings and queens of Madagascar took a far more conciliatory stance toward the Europeans and their beliefs. Over the next few decades, the royal family itself converted, and even made Anglicanism the official religion of state. At the same time, French missionaries were allowed to spread the Catholic faith outside the corridors of power. Hence, Protestant Christianity became a religion of the Madagascan elites, while the Catholic Church drew most of her converts from the poor. Despite their unequal status, Catholics and Protestants in the Marina Kingdom got along fairly well, and both groups were tolerated by the pagan majority. But missionary priests were not the only Frenchmen on Madagascar in the closing years of the 19th century. The island's abundant natural resources, in forests, minerals, and farmland, drew the attention of entrepreneurs ready to make their fortune and establish a colony to secure it. The most famous of these men was Joseph-François Lambert, an adventurer who claimed rather dubiously, to have signed an agreement with Queen Ranavalona's son, granting the French exclusive rights over all wilderness land in Madagascar. In other words, most of the island. This agreement, which came to be called the Lambert Charter, was quite possibly a fraud. And in any case, Lambert himself had no legal right to sign it, being only a private citizen of France. It might have been forgotten entirely, had the government of the French Republic not taken a sudden interest in Africa. The period from the 1880s until the start of the Great War in 1914 is sometimes called the Scramble for Africa because the great powers of Europe, mainly the British and French, engaged in a kind of Cold War to grab as many colonies as they could across the so-called Dark Continents before their rivals got them first. In a series of wars in the 1890s, using the Lambert Charter as a pretext, the French invaded Madagascar to usurp the British-backed Marina monarchy and claim the island for themselves. These wars, and the native revolts they provoked, were bloody. In addition to thousands of people killed in the fighting, many Christian missionaries were targeted by pagan rebels simply for being foreign. Among those martyred was Saint Jacques Berthieu, a French Catholic priest whose story I may tell another time. But the upshot of all this conflict was that by 1897, Madagascar had become an official, if unstable, French colony. It was in this turbulent colonial world, where many natives viewed Christianity as the religion of their foreign oppressors, that Lucien Bodavasoa was born in 1908. He grew up in the village of Vohipeno, 
a small farming community in the south of Madagascar, and his family lived in poverty. But Lucian's parents, while pagan, were not hostile to Christianity, as so many others in their station were, and they allowed their son to take an interest in the faith. So on Holy Saturday of 1922, at the age of 13, Lucian was baptized. He was confirmed as a Catholic the following year, and his parents would eventually follow him. When Lucian came of age, he traveled to the city of Fianarantsoa, the education capital of Madagascar, long home to Christian seminaries, to pursue training as a teacher at the Jesuit College of St. Joseph. He graduated in 1928 and returned to Vohipeno to teach in a local Catholic school. By all accounts, he excelled in that role, and often stayed at school after hours to teach the catechism and read the lives of the saints with his students. Two years later, in 1930, he married a woman of his native diocese named Susanna. The couple would go on to have eight children, though because of the poverty and poor medical care of the time, only five would survive to adulthood. Throughout his marriage, Lucian continued to share his many talents with his parish, as well as with his family, offering himself as a singer, musician, and choir director, and somehow finding the time to learn French, German, and even Chinese, in addition to his native Malagasy. His devotions to St. Francis and the Sacred Heart of Jesus led him to join several lay fraternities where he could further his work for the people of Madagascar, including the Crusaders of the Heart of Jesus, the Honor Guard of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the Young Malagasy Catholics, and the Third Order, or Secular, Franciscans. The last did not even exist in Madagascar at the time, so in 1940, Lucian himself started a group of lay Catholics who would live by the Franciscan rule. In fact, Lucian was so committed to living a religious life, and could clearly have made such a good priest, that a nun once asked him if he regretted getting married. But Lucian replied immediately that he did not have the slightest regret at all. God had called him to serve as a husband, father, and teacher and that was more than enough. When his wife Susanna, understandably a bit worried that her husband might have had another vocation, asked if he was going to leave her to join a monastery, Lucian laughed and assured her that nothing could be further from the truth. But while he was gentle with his family and never imposed his own rules upon them, Lucian was truly dedicated to living the life of a secular Franciscan. It was not an easy task. He woke up several times a night to pray on his knees, fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays, making sure at the same time that his wife and children always ate well, and wore the distinctive khaki clothing of the Franciscans instead of the customary black of a Madagascan teacher. Lucian's passion for the faith, together with his warm and loving personality, earned him a reputation as a model Christian. He came to be called Rabefi Havanana, the Reconciler, 
for his gentle strength and mercy. It was no doubt his fame as a natural leader that brought him to public attention as Madagascar's political troubles resurfaced in the 1940s. With France humiliated by her crushing defeat at German hands, the French colonial empire found itself on the edge of total collapse after the Second World War. It was obvious that the French were no longer a global power. And all over the world, from the sands of Algeria to the jungles of Vietnam, regions that had long been French possessions began to push for independence. Recognizing the weakness of his state, President Charles de Gaulle offered representation in the French National Assembly to delegates from the colonies. But far from solving the problem, this concession only showed the world that France could no longer rule her own empire. Nativist movements in the colonies only continued to grow. In Madagascar, as in much of mainland Africa, the collapse of French authority invited ancient tribal warfare to return in the guise of democratic politics. The two political parties that arose to contest the future of Madagascar, the Democratic Movements for Malagasy Renewal, or MDRM, and the Party of the Disinherited of Madagascar, or PATISM, both claimed to support independence from France through peaceful protest. But in reality, these parties channeled the vicious power struggles of various ethnic groups within Madagascar. MDRM represented the traditional Marina elites, who had ruled the Kingdom of Madagascar before the coming of the French, and now wanted to restore their racial dominance. While Patisim drew upon groups that had once been enslaved by the Marina, and now sought revenge for old grudges. These racist paramilitary gangs masquerading as political parties were united only by their common hatred of all things foreign, including the Christian faith. I'm only telling you these grubby details because both parties approached Lucien Bodovasoa in the elections of 1945 and 1946, both hoping to recruit him as a politician, to manipulate Catholic voters through his influence. But Lucien refused their offers, wanting no part in the racial hatred and anti-Christian fanaticism that ran through their movements. He saw, correctly, that the anti-colonial struggle would unleash the brutality of tribal warfare on the people of Madagascar. And so he rebuked both parties with the words, Your politics are nourished by lies and can only end in blood. Sadly, in the spring of 1947, Lucien's prediction came true. The conflict between MDRM, Patisem, and the French governments broke out into open war. Since independence, this event has sometimes been celebrated as the Malagasy Uprising of 1947. 
but it was much more than a revolt against colonial rule. In addition to targeting government officials and military bases, the rebels killed anyone suspected of collaborating with their hated imperial masters. As in previous waves of nativism, going all the way back to Queen Ranavalona, these quote-unquote collaborators included Christians, whose only crime was adhering to a foreign faith. On Palm Sunday, the 30th of March, Lucian's father advised him to hide his family in the forest outside Vohipeno. Lucian obeyed, likely saving his wife and children. Throughout Holy Week, nativist thugs aligned with both MDRM and Patism committed atrocities against Christians across the island. By Easter Sunday, no fewer than 18 churches had been burned. Thousands of innocent people lay dead, and the bloodshed would only continue to escalate as French government forces brutally retaliated. Returning to Vohipeno on the Sunday after Easter, today known as Divine Mercy Sunday, Lucien gathered the people of his hometown to pray as a community. All who believed in the one true God, whether Catholic, Protestant, or even Muslim, joined Lucien that day in prayer and song. He encouraged his neighbors to have the strength to face martyrdom, knowing that such a fate was fast approaching for himself. The exact details of what happened next, in the hours leading up to Lucien's own martyrdom, are a bit of a challenge to sort through. Various eyewitnesses gave slightly different accounts, but I've pieced it together as best I can. The details, in any case, are less important than the fact itself, on which everyone universally agrees. The following day, on the 14th of April, 1947, Lucien was approached once more by a representative of one of the warring rebel factions, a tribal chief aligned with MDRM, styling himself a king. The chief offered him a chance to save his own life by joining the party as its secretary. He saw the charismatic Christian leader as a threat, and wanted to recruit him to the anti-colonial cause. Or else. Lucian knew that the only alternative was death. But all the same, he refused. As he explained to the chieftain, You kill. You burn the churches. You forbid prayer. You let the crucifixes be trampled and you destroy the sacred images, the rosaries, and the scapulars. You want to desecrate our church. Yours is a dirty work. You know how important religion is to me. I cannot work for you. Lucian returned home to enjoy lunch with his wife and children, knowing it would be the last time. Susanna begged him to hide, to save his own life, but Lucian 
could see what lay ahead of him, and wanted to spare his family from the same fate. He pointed up at the icon of St. Francis, embracing the wolf of Gubbio, which had always hung on the wall of their home. He will protect me, Lucian said. He prayed with his family that afternoon, and at nine o'clock in the evening, a knock came on the door. The chieftain's men had come to arrest him. Lucian gave no resistance as they led him away. Tell my family not to cry, he said to those watching, because I am happy. It is God who takes me. May your hearts never abandon God. After a brief trial before the chieftain's kangaroo courts, Lucian was sentenced to death for refusing to aid the rebels and taken to the place of his execution. A slaughterhouse on the banks of a river running through Vohipeno. As he approached the site, he prayed aloud, Oh my God, forgive my brothers, who now have a difficult task to face. May my blood be shed for the salvation of my country. The eyewitnesses who later reported this prayer asked the executioners how they could kill such an obviously innocent man. They replied that they were all afraid for their own lives. At last the executioners brought Lucian to the slaughterhouse, where he knelt on the ground by the riverside. Do not tie me, he said to his killers when they tried to bind his hands. I will tie myself. He promptly did so, continuing to pray for them as he prostrated himself on the ground in homage to God. Lucian's final request, as the lead executioner raised a sword to behead him, was to die in one clean stroke. The request was granted. The executioners dumped his body, still wearing the plain khaki clothes of a secular Franciscan, into the river. Among the men who murdered Lucian were students he had taught in school. Lucian Bodavasoa is not a very well-known figure outside of Madagascar. In fact, I only came across him for the first time while praying the Liturgy of the Hours in Holy Week this year. But as I've looked into his life, I've found him to be one of the most relatable characters in the recent history of the Church. There's something profoundly beautiful in the normality of his life. He really could have been anyone. Although I love telling the stories of ancient heroes, and I'll certainly share many more with you in the future, I think it's good to remind ourselves that not all saints are otherworldly characters from the distant past, figures at home in stained-glass windows and dusty manuscript pages. Lucian shows that a perfectly ordinary person in the modern world 
can live a heroic life just like the giants of the early church. Martyrdom may seem a strange and unlikely destiny for most of us today, as I'm sure it must have seemed to Lucian when he was merely a common school teacher reading the lives of the saints in a quiet countryside village. But times change faster than we expect, and even the most unassuming of men, a dad, a teacher, a parish choir director, can end up being called to make the ultimate sacrifice for Christ. Lucian also has a lot to teach us about marriage and family life. People sometimes complain that there aren't many married saints in the canon, and while it's true that celibate priests and nuns make up most of the famous names, we do ourselves a great disservice if we ignore married laity like Lucian, who have been held up for veneration by the church. In Lucian, we find a model of patience and leadership that any husband could do well to study. He didn't always have an easy marriage, as I'm sure you've picked up from the story. Like any married couple, Lucian and Susanna disagreed from time to time about their priorities. He was committed, above all, to living a life of holiness, while she was more worldly, and perhaps more down-to-earth. But Lucian never forced his wife and children to obey his own discipline of prayer and fasting, nor, on the other hand, did he give up that discipline simply because they didn't share it. At the end of his life, he gave himself up without hesitation for his family, as well as for God. Knowing that his wife and children might be harassed, tortured, and killed if he went into hiding, Lucian died to protect them. Blessed Lucian Bodavasoa is commemorated on the day of his martyrdom the 14th of April. As I mentioned at the start of today's show, he was only beatified in 2018, so it may take some time for a devotional cult to emerge beyond his native country. I don't have any prayers to link, as I normally do. But if you enjoyed Lucian's story, then guess what? You can be part of the next chapter. The cults of the saints evolve organically, as we, the faithful, pray for their intercession in our lives. Lucian has already become a patron of fathers, teachers, and married couples, and I would suggest he can also intercede to help us grow in mercy. If you'd like to pray to Blessed Lucian, perhaps the best place to start is with his own prayer for his executioners moments before his martyrdom. O oh my God, forgive my brothers, who now have a difficult task to face. When our brothers and sisters scorn us, wound us, betray us, and persecute us, we can turn to Lucian's words to invoke the mercy of God. May Blessed Lucian Bodavasoa, the Reconciler, husband, father, teacher, and martyr, come to our aid 
now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.